The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good morning, and thank you for joining host Cheryl Esposito for an intriguing hour of Leading Conversations. Each week, Cheryl brings together big thinkers to the Voice America Business Channel. Now here's your host, Cheryl Esposito. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito. Today, our guest is Blaine Bartlett. Blaine is the CEO and president of Avatar Resources. He's the associate professor at Beijing University. He's on the advisory boards of the Global Coaching Alliance and the All Japan Management Coaching Association. He is co-author of Discover Your Inner Strength, which was written in collaboration with the late Stephen Covey, Ken Blanchard, and Brian Tracy. His current book, The um, Three-Dimensional Coaching, is published in China and Japan. And his upcoming book, soon to be completed, Success Sustained, The Case for Compassionate Capitalism. Blaine, welcome to Leading Conversations. Well, thank you, Cheryl. It's good to be back again. Well, it's good to have you back. We we love having you here. You know, you are <laughs> one of the um, most well-traveled, worldly people that um, I love to have conversations with. You uh, have been, you know, connected to Asia for a really long time, which I find fascinating. And now your work is being published, and you continue to be sought after there. But not just there, but all around the world. You know, as uh, as an executive coach, as someone who is sought after in the field of leadership, your expertise is quite vast. Let's talk for a minute about why you were attracted to the field of leadership way back when. When did that start? <laughs> it does go way back when. Uh, that would be probably in, uh, I mean, just chronologically, the late 1970s. Um, I was doing quite a bit of work in the human potential field, uh, which was kind of emerging at that time, just you know, in, in, in the form of popular consumption. This is the time, uh, if you remember, of EST coming uh, coming up, actualizations with Stuart Emery, uh, LifeSpring, and I was involved uh, in that in that field, and got interested pretty early on um, uh, about how organizations became and sustained success over time and it uh, you know the more i looked at it the more obvious it became to me that that was a function of uh leadership and uh not just any kind of leadership but a specific kind of leadership uh that that mm-hmm. caused people to examine who they were in the context of the environments and the systems that they were participating in mm. well you know you not only travel the world, but uh, you have a place where you go to retreat and restore, rejuvenate. Where are you today? Well, today I'm up on uh, Whidbey Island. Uh, we've got, the, as you mentioned, the retreat center up here. And I'm sitting in my office 
looking out at the the ocean, and uh, it's just spectacular. Just had an eagle fly by. <laughs> well, for those of you who don't know, who around the world, Whidbey Island is in the San Juan Islands off of the Washington State coast, and it is exquisitely beautiful, and especially this time of year as the um, summers become longer. Now, you know, the reason I bring that up is that, you know, to do this work, to do the work of compassion, to do the work of coaching and leadership support, you really have to be very clear yourself, right? You have to not take with you any of your concerns or problems or, um, you know, complications of the day, whatever that may be. And so many of us who are in this field know that to be able to spend some time out in nature or simply alone really matters. So talk a bit about bringing someone to the retreat center in Whidbey Island. I mean, do you get much pushback when you want people to come? Um, not really. I mean, yeah, for many of the clients, at least the, the initial suggestion is uh, you want me to fly to Seattle and then take a ferry to an island and you're going to spend two days with me. And I go, yep, that's that's how we're going to start. Um, and once they kind of get by the uh, initial, what's that about? Curiosity sets in, right? And uh, and also, I mean, just kind of the way that I position uh, this is, you know, we want time away from their traditional and, and typical, you know, day to day hubbub mm. or that reflective piece, and one of the things that I find in today's environment in particular is a lot of leaders don't have a lot of reflective time. Right. And it's right. that reflective time that actually begins to allow for a different and oftentimes a more creative approach to how they're doing their business. Mm. You know, I, I so appreciate that because um, many leaders not only don't have the time, they believe they don't have the time. They believe they don't have the time to take. And what you and I have seen and many of us in the field have seen over the years is that as they are draining their own energy, they start making decisions that aren't in the best interest of the organization. Absolutely. So, yeah, you know, so so that you know that leads us to the conversation around compassionate capitalism. Now, really, <laughs> really, <laughs> you know, I can imagine them not only saying you want me to go to the island, but are you kidding me? Compassionate capitalism. How are those things connected? Yeah. Well, that's. I mean, I, I love that you bring that up because the the two words married together do seem to be somewhat jarring. Right. And it's, it's interesting when you start taking uh, the word compassion and unbundle it just a little bit, and also when you look at the historical uh, trajectory of capitalism over time. Um, and I'll just you know, take a look at uh, compassion right now. First of all, uh, it, the word compassion comes from um, the word passion, uh, which is sourced from an ancient Greek verb, pasco, which means to suffer. And, you know, simply put, I mean, yeah, compassion is the act of being with suffering, being with somebody that is suffering. Now, where this gets interesting, to me anyway, 
is, yeah, partly, you know, the role of a coach is to be with the suffering of our clients, but it's not in the way that it's usually thought of. And, and I, what I mean by that is the word suffer, when you actually look it up in the dictionary, it doesn't have anything to do with pain. It has yeah. to do with that. It, literally, the word suffer means to feel keenly. Oh, wow. And it's that point of feeling keenly. It's, you know, I mean, imagine, you know, when you've, and we've all had this experience, you know, you've had your legs crossed or something, and your foot's gone to sleep. Uh-huh. And you notice it, and, and then you, you know, kind of stamp your foot a bit, and it starts to waken up. Right. And you feel that tingling, and it's, you know, it's uncomfortable, but it's also exquisitely alive. You can feel the life surging back into it. Uh-huh. Where suffering comes into play with, Coaching is finding that point of most potential aliveness with our client. Mm. Where have they deadened themselves? Mm. Where have they uh, come to uh, be numb uh, to uh, experience, to observation, to access, to resource, those sorts of things? So it's, it's that point that we want to be able to move to. So I use the word compassion in a, uh, in a in an actually fairly edgy sort of a way mm-hmm. because to go to that point requires uh, a great deal of vulnerability on the part of our client. It's uncomfortable. Compassion is not, you know, let's just think, you know, sit around a, a blue candle and stare at it and go kumbaya. Uh, that's, really? Oh, and really, it's not. Uh, and it's not about sympathy. It's about going to that point of rawness, that point of uh, potentiality, that point of most aliveness. You know, I, yeah, Dr. Sh- uh, Will Schutz, uh, some of you, your listeners may yeah. recognize his name. Uh, but Will, yeah, he, he was the originator of the FIRO instrument that's used extensively right. in the world of business as well as a, a number of other uh, psychometric uh, instruments. He said to me one time, you know, we connect through our vulnerabilities. And I think that is a very profound observation. And I've also expanded that in our work uh, to not only do we connect through our vulnerabilities, we disconnect through our certainties. Oh. And partly what I want to be able to do, and this is part of the awakening if you will, is challenge the certainties that leaders bring to what they do. And in that challenging of certainties that requires vulnerability, and it oftentimes moves them into places that they didn't know had gone asleep. Mm. So So, give us us an example of a certainty that a leader may be stuck in. Ah... Well, uh, it, it, it can be a number of things here. One that comes readily to mind is, uh, you know, and you work a lot in this area as well, strategic plan implementation uh, might be one way to think about this. Uh, we're trying to get a new strategic plan in place, and they, whoever they may be, just aren't listening. I'm telling them what I need to have them do. The business case is absolutely, you know, bulletproof. Why aren't they acting on this? And the leader stands on the stage, you know, metaphorically, exhorting the troops, metaphorically, again, to go forth and conquer. And they, they see, the, the folks in the field see this facade of certainty, which can be confidence-creating, but they're not sure who they're connecting with. And what we're finding today 
And there, this goes into some of the uh, emerging uh, information around uh, what I'll talk about a little bit later about capitalism. But what we're finding today is people respond best when they feel connected to the leader that they are being asked to follow. And it's that connection. How do people connect? We connect through being able to see a leader say, I understand that this is a big change for, uh, for us. We've not been down this road before. Strategically, we need to move in this direction. What are the concerns that we may be, you know, and then you start that conversation. You know, if you're going to have difficulty with this at a local level, you know, I mean, this is part of the conversation that the leader has with his or her uh, uh, directors or whoever. What might be some of the difficulties, and how can we begin to take the sensibilities of our people into account? And this is where the, you know, the whole idea of being compassionate begins to have some pretty um, interesting bottom-line results. It costs a lot of resource, both time and money, to have people resist a change that we know has to occur. Now, change is, you know, change is normative. You know, people are uh, in resistance to change is normative. What we want to be able to do is find ways to get over that hump as quickly as possible. And what we're finding is that when the stakeholders' sensibilities and the you know, stakeholders' concerns are taken into account, that we can begin to move the process much faster than if we were just trying to force it along. Because mm-hmm. there's always spring back if we're forcing things. You know, that's really an interesting thought, spring back. So, you know, moving forward one step, moving back, what, ten steps? You know, Ten I've, steps sometimes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Know, we've both seen this happen a lot. And, mm-hmm. you know, it... Um, makes me wonder, <clears throat> what does it take for a leader to say, okay, there must be a different way? I mean, how many times do you think they have to go through that? Because you and I both know that it, it's usually more than once. Yeah, it's definitely more than once. Uh, and, the, I mean, if there's a specific answer to that question, I think that answer literally is, it depends <laughs> and I don't mean to be facetious, but it does depend on the leader themselves. I mean, right. what's their tolerance for pain? What's their tolerance for frustration? Uh, and how quickly do they recognize the need to move? Uh, yeah, if they're treating it as business as usual, uh, and this is where the, the, the numbness begins to come into play and, and the certainty that many of the leaders operate with, <clears throat> We want to be able to have them pause and reflect for a moment to take a look, if they can, at the system in which they are a part. Now, how is the system responding to our request to move in a different direction? I can get one, you know, know, I'm sitting here watching the wind blow right now. And, I mean, imagine a mobile, and one the wind blows a piece of that mobile. The entire mobile starts to move as a consequence of that. And what's interesting about that kind of movement is it only took one little piece to set the whole thing in motion. That's what happens in an organizational system. If one little piece can begin to move and sustain its movement, the rest of the organization will begin to fall in line because the system is always seeking some sort of equilibrium. Now, if... We 
push on one piece, and we aren't aware enough to know what needs to be in place to have it sustain itself, to sustain that push, to sustain that movement, this is where we get spring back. Because the system is conspiring to move it back to where it's comfortable, to move it back to where it's always been, despite the best business case reasons for why it needs to move. The system prefers comfort. Just like us. Just like us. Just like us, yeah. <laughs> we have more to talk about with Blaine Bartlett when we come right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword Voice America. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. Welcome back, everyone. This is Leading Conversations, and we're speaking today with Blaine Bartlett. So, Blaine, you have this idea about compassionate capitalism. So, you know, earlier in the show, I was kind of teasing you, saying, yeah, right, what? You know, what is that? You must be getting a lot of that around this concept. But you talk about a triple bottom line, sometimes a quadruple bottom line, in, within the compassionate capitalism realm. So talk about that. Tell us what this is. Well, um, and I've got a citation that I don't recall right now, just in terms of who originally came up with the triple bottom line uh, notion. But simply put, it's a, a focus not fundamentally on shareholder value and or profits, quarterly profits. Mm-hmm. It's an expanded focus on the part of the organization, particularly the leadership group in the organization, on the welfare uh, of the people involved, you know, the, the stakeholders in a, in a broader sense here. And that's not just uh, customers. It's the employees of, with whom uh, we work. It's our uh, vendors and uh, suppliers. You know, are, there, are they being taken into account? Are their needs being taken into account as we do business? So a focus on people. Uh, there's also a focus on uh, what could be called place, um, and this is more of an environmental orientation. Is the way that we do business healthy or harmful to the larger ecosphere in which we actually operate, uh, the planet, our community, um, 
the nation state that uh, the company's a part of, mm-hmm. and global organizations. Uh, I mean, it literally takes up the whole world. So it's a, it's a focus on decision-making within the context of at least considering what's the implication environmentally of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the third uh, area here actually does have to do with profitability, uh, but it's not one over the sake of the others. Uh, profit is just one piece of the mix, and certainly, I mean, a business has to be profitable if it's going to remain in business. So a triple bottom line look has to do with the people, the, the place, and the profit. And it's some, in some circles, it's being expanded into what you referred to as a quadruple bottom line, which brings in the, uh, uh, the uh, sensibility of, uh, uh, and I'll use the word here and I'll define it, uh, the, the sensibility of spirituality, and, I, and not in a religious connotation, but right. in the connotation of meaning, is what we're doing creating meaning on the uh, or in the experience of of our uh, of our sh- uh, stakeholders, um, and where that comes into play has to do with just a, a simple understanding that human beings, as a, you know, we as a species, what we seek is a profoundly you know, passionate and pleasurable experience of being alive, and if we're having access to that. Uh, generally speaking, life is going to work pretty well for all of the, the folks that are involved. Um, so the triple bottom line or the quadruple bottom line is a very holistic way of looking at how we're doing business. And this is one of the challenges that I find you know, when we're working with leaders is when they start thinking about the uh, varied stakeholders uh, of the business, they can begin to... Think of them in terms of what kind of trade-offs do I need to make in order to keep this constituency happy or that constituency happy. Right. And what we're suggesting, and this is where the compassionate piece comes into play here, is that any time you begin considering trade-offs, you're not being compassionate. And I'm going to what I mean by this. Um, compassion requires an, an attention to the needs and welfare, uh, and ultimately the uh, the overarching benefit to that particular stakeholder group, not in contrast to what another group might be getting. So when I start eliminating trade-off between stakeholder groups as an option, I start getting creative about how I go about making and implementing decisions. Yeah, and, and I think a great example of this, um, Charles Schwab, um, back. You know, this goes back about four or five years ago, I think, when, you know, when, the, when the big crash came. Uh, Schwab, Schwab was you know, actually forced to lay off some folks uh, for some very fundamental business and economic reasons. What they did was brilliant, I think. They gave the people that were impacted, and it was a couple of hundred folks in their organization they, they had, that they had to, to lay off. What they did in the laying off process was they gave them stock options. And they said, you are right now having to take the hit for what's going on. We don't want you to be punished for this. It's something that we need to do. We want to take care of you in the best way and the only way that we know how to right now. As we bounce back because of what's going on right now with you, we will be more successful. And we want you to reap the benefit or some of the benefit of us coming back. So instead of doing a trade-off, we're going we're to come back, but you're going to pay the price. 
what they did was they say, here are some stock options. As we come back, you will also be reaping some of the benefit of this process. So it was a very innovative way to address a a, a very uh, um, serious business need at that point. Right, right, right. Well, that's a tough decision for any company when they get to the point where they have to lay off. And I, I think that that's becoming a tougher decision these days, you know, in um, the early days of the business um, world, layoffs were viewed as, well, it's just part of business. It's just the way it yeah. is. And there was no sense of um, that the organization owed these people anything or that they were somehow responsible for helping the transition be easier, etc., or for mm-hmm. training people up so that they were ready for whatever the next phase of the business cycle was going to be, you know, maybe we can take our people and let them be the ones who can move into this next phase with the new skills that we need. There was none of that. And there's certainly a whole lot more of that today. Um, And I like what you talk about in terms of creating meaning. I'm wondering about companies that... um, shall we say, kind of have a black eye in the world in terms of what they do. Um, And, you know, if we're we're just talking broadly, we can say things like oil companies, right? You know, because Mm -hmm. of all the, even though we all, just about every single one of us, um, benefits from what they do because we drive a car um, or we heat our home sometimes with, with those products or we use plastic something, which is derived from petroleum. You know, we, we have a whole lot of benefits in our lives because of what those companies do, and yet we have decided that they are the evildoers, and there is a lot of um, destruction that can be caused because of mistakes, um, simple oil spills, etc. Um, you know, kind of the what what's been known as the raping of the earth and then leaving mm-hmm. it behind um, when they dig for wells, etc. And so, how do you help people in those companies feel like? They have. They're creating meaning. What? What? What do you do there? How do you make translate that? Um, in a large system like that, that has a lot of history, it's an interesting conversation for sure. Um, I mean, just kind of a historical frame. Um, if we look at the last, let's say, forty years, uh, trust in big business has just plummeted. Right. Um, right now, according to some of the latest Gallup information, it's you know, hovering around 15 percent, you know, which is, uh, is a positive approval rating for big business, which puts it in the class right next to the politicians in uh, in Washington D.C., which right. I'm not sure that's a great company. Right. Uh, what What's fascinating to me, Cheryl, is when we go back and look at business. Uh, business has been arguably the greatest creator of value in all of human history. Mm. Yeah, it's um, just amazing what's occurred since capitalism came on the scene 
Oh, well, yeah. Uh, the Wealth of Nations was published in 1776. Uh, the mm-hmm. Industrial Revolution began in around uh, 1750s, somewhere in that area. Um, per capita income, uh, real, uh, actually not per capita income, real GDP, national GDP, if you go back to you know, roughly 1750, 1700, it was about $600. Today, uh, it's uh, roughly, and this is in, in constant dollars, it's about $7,300. Hmm. So that's a direct consequence, uh, consequence of businesses' um, um, impact on the, 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 you know, what Adam Smith called the wealth of nations. Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at uh, poverty, mm-hmm. uh, going back to the 1800s, um, people living on a dollar a day, um, about 90% of, uh, roughly 90% of people on the planet in the early 1800s lived on less than a dollar a day. And again, these are constant dollars. Um, in 2003, it was uh, roughly around 8%. And if the current trend continues, the projection by the World Bank is that poverty could virtually be eliminated in the next 50 years. Now, this is a direct consequence of what business contributes to society. It's, it, it is incredibly positive, and there, are, there have been decisions that have been made that have cast business in a very unfavorable light, and a part of it has to do with just this, a, a, an interesting migration around how people have held the purpose of business. Um, I mean, you go back to the wealth of nation, uh, Adam Smith, the invisible hand. Um, you know, basically what he was saying in the wealth of nations was that individuals make a trade-off. You know, when they purchase something, what they're basically saying is that they value what they're purchasing more than what they are giving up in exchange. And that, that you know, literally that notion underlies the concept of mutual, uh, mutually beneficial trade, where both sides tend to benefit. Now, that was interpersonal. Both sides, you know, we can also take a transactional look at how we take resources from the earth. Is the earth benefiting? You know, what's the the reciprocity there? That Mm -hmm. has gotten lost. Mm -hmm. Uh, Milton Friedman, um, you know, go back to the mid part of last century, uh, free markets promote freedom and democracy. I don't think any argument with that at all if we look at uh, what's happened in the last 40 years in particular. Freeman said, and this is very interesting, the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits. That was a demarcation point. And he said that, I believe, in about 1964, somewhere in that neighborhood. I don't have the exact date here, so that may be off a bit. But the idea that the social responsibility of business is to increase its profits began to move the whole process of business away from values creation. And today's world, modern-day capitalism, is based on consumption, not on value creation. And that is a huge distinction. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A huge distinction. And it's that focus on consumption that begins to move us away from some of these other more altruistic uh, notions. And this is where both the conscious capitalism but also the compassionate capitalism conversation, I think, holds the power to begin to bring us back a little bit into a a state of equilibrium around this. Mm -hmm. Um, We have the power. We have uh, 
you know, the ability to uh, begin to redefine business. And I prefer to think that, you know, the proper defining purpose of business is to serve life and community. I mean, if business can be positioned to serve life and community, it speaks to uh, the economic value that's created. It also speaks to, to meaning. You know, it, um, I'm getting on a soapbox here. But 1989, something very interesting happened in this country. And this is, you know, where we start looking at meaning, which kind of goes full circle back to, you know, what you were mentioning a bit ago. In 1989, for the first time in history, the U.S. population went over, uh, the majority of adults were over 40 years of age. In 1989, for the first time in U.S. history, the majority of adults were older than 40. And when we look at that cohort and we look at the millennials that come up as a consequence of being raised by these, these folks, of which you and I are, are, are part of that group, um, the over 40 group, um, meaning is really important to us. Yeah. You know, the, the what, you know, for the sake of what am I doing what I do? How does it give me a sense of personal satisfaction and fulfillment? And success in many ways is defined by the experience of fulfillment, which is different than the acquisition of things. So when we start looking at business's role in creating access to greater meaning, this is where the challenge for leaders becomes very, very, very interesting and I think um, useful to, to attend to. How can they create possibilities for people in their organizations, all stakeholders that are touched by their organizations, to have access to an experience of being associated with you is a meaningful proposition. It's a meaningful business proposition mm. for me. Mm. That, I think, is a great question. And it comes down literally to do you matter? Do you matter? That's do a you great matter? question. That's a great question. Well, let's talk more about that when we come right back. Okay. Find out which guests are being featured this week. Read our network press releases and read the blog posts from your favorite hosts. Go to iradioblog.com today. Powered by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. We appreciate you joining our leading conversations today. If you would like to participate in today's conversation, please call us now at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Now back to your host, Cheryl. 
Welcome back to Leading Conversations. This is Cheryl Esposito speaking with our very special guest and good friend, Blaine Bartlett. Well, Blaine, so we've talked a lot about the social case for why compassionate capitalism matters in the scheme of the world and in the scheme of society. Let's talk about the real business case around this because you and I both know that CEOs that we work with and the leaders around the world are going to nod their heads and say, yes, yes, that's correct. It is socially important. And then they're going to say, and help me make the business case for this so that I can convince the board so that we still make profit. What is it? Well, you know, there there is some really interesting data out. Um, there's, I mean, I love the title of this book. It's called Firms of Endearment. Uh, Firms of Endearment by uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Raj Sisodia. Um, he wrote this book a couple of years ago, and it was you know, Raj is one of the, the founders, if you will, of the conscious capitalism movement, uh, and he and John Mackey. Uh, from Whole Foods, and John was the founder of Whole Foods, have written another book called Conscious Capitalism, literally. Um, in both of these books, there's data uh, that speaks to you know, the business case for why we would want to pay attention to some of the things that we've been talking about uh, uh, on, the, on this program. Um, just real simply, I think most of the business listeners here are familiar with uh, Jim Collins' book, uh, Good to Great. And what Raj has done in his book, Firms of Endearment, and he's updating the book uh, right now, uh, but he took a look at just some very simple business metrics, um, stock return, um, you know, from a period of time from 1996 to 2011, not a huge window, but he looked at the S&P um, numbers and compared them to the good to great companies, and then the firms of endearment companies, and there were a, a select group of companies that qualified as firms of endearment. These are conscious, you know, what are called conscious businesses. Costco would be amongst them, Whole Foods certainly, Southwest Airlines. You have companies like this, companies that pay more than just lip service to some of the things that we were talking about around triple bottom line sensibilities. Um, the firms of endearment outperformed both the S&P and the good-to-great companies 10.5 to 1 uh, in terms of the total stock return valuations. I mean, it was just mm. off the charts. Mm. And it was a surprise to Raj when he, when, when he uh, actually ended up you know, coalescing this data, compiling this data. The interesting thing around the good-to-great companies are these were companies um, that primarily had a focus on bottom-line results. They did not necessarily have an overarching focus on what we're calling triple or quadruple bottom line uh, sensibilities. So by expanding the way that I consider stakeholders and beginning to eliminate the, the notion of trade-offs, it actually benefits in a very tangible way the business's health and well-being. Um, and so you can just kind of look at some of those numbers and go, wow, that's, that's amazing. Um, there's 
some other data here that I won't get into, um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's actually quite profound uh, in terms of the multiples and what happens here. Um, so if I'm a business leader, I'm going to want to pay attention to this because it will net me more money. Um, <laughs> yeah, and that's going to likely be what my board is holding me and certainly what my shareholders are going to be holding me accountable for. Right. There's a larger purpose for it, though. Right. So, um, so let's talk about some of those companies that um, really people don't have a sense of that they have any uh, desire to consider the well-being of people, whether it be their employees or people in the communities they they um, have organizations in. You know, let's talk about companies like oil companies and gas companies and, um, you know, companies that are dumping toxic waste and pharmaceutical companies and et cetera. And, you know, though, as I said earlier in the program, it can be argued that they do a lot of good for people or they provide a lot of product and service that everybody's very happy to use, um, you know, yet there's this reputation and, and there actually has been not just reputation, but um, actual um, evidence that they're not always concerned about people. And, mm-hmm. of course, some of them make the largest profit of any type of company in the entire world. And so how I'm still wondering how you convince them or get them to see you know, why this matters? I don't know that it will happen uh, immediately. It's taken us a long time to get to this point. I think that mm-hmm. this is a generational uh, process, mm-hmm. I, and I really do think it's generational. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this kind of gets us off on a little bit of a tangent here, but it's, 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 I think it's interesting to consider what's going on with the human condition on this mm-hmm. planet and why I think that there is hope. I think we are at a tipping point. Certainly, we as a, as a species are better, better informed. We have access to more information than we right. have historically ever had in our lives. So we've got mm-hmm. act. I mean, a company today cannot do something and not have somebody find out about it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the greatest, you know, most recent examples here uh, is Novartis. Uh, there was mm-hmm. just a thing in the, in the press, the, what, yesterday or two days ago, about them you know, the question being, did they violate their corporate integrity agreement? And the uh, accusation is that they paid kickbacks to boost prescriptions um, and cause federal health care programs to pay for it based on false claims. Now, that's the allegation. If it's, in fact, true, you know, that's an example of, you know, people are going to find out about stuff very quickly. Um, Another thing is we are, you know, not only more informed, we're more connected. Yeah, there are more active telephone numbers on the planet today than there are people, mm-hmm. which, is, which is a fascinating statistic. Uh, Facebook has over a billion users. Yeah. Um, so people are connected. So keeping something a secret any longer is not an option. It's going right. to get out. Right. Um, you look at what Anonymous is doing to state secrets, quote-unquote state mm-hmm. secrets. Um, and then there's something else that's called the Flynn effect, which has to do with, uh, it's actually a measure of our intelligence as a species. Um, 
studies have shown that, yeah, since we started tracking uh, intelligence, you know, through the use of IQ tests and whatnot, right. that generationally there's a 20, you know, up to a 20-point increase generation to generations uh, uh, amongst people. And it's, and it's global. It's not just isolated in, in certain areas of the, uh, the world. Mm. Literally today, people that are living today are essentially the equivalent of what would have been geniuses 200 years ago. Mm. Just based purely on you know, intellect. Mm-hmm. And all of this is just kind of conspiring to say we are paying attention to more and different things than we ever have before. Mm. So, and in the education, so I, we as a species are becoming more conscious, and that's why I think we are at a tipping point. I think that there are some folks that are on the upper end of that uh, bell curve, mm. and the bell curve itself can go one way or the other. I think the more we begin to get leaders to pay attention to these sorts of things, challenge them to not make trade-offs, challenge them to make uh, informed decisions that include stakeholders in the, in the best possible way, it, gets to, it, it begins to get an interesting uh, mix stirred up that mm-hmm. produces a different kind of uh, a play out in the world. Right. Mission becomes linked to an ideal behind, you know, beyond fiscal returns. Um, businesses and its operations aren't separate from and does have impact on all stakeholders. Leaders lead from integrity, not expediency. Uh, management and culture are developed in ways that support and honor the greater good. I mean, these are things that deserve more than lip service, and there are companies that are beginning to pay attention to this. Uh, and the more publicity, you know, publicity they get, I think it's going to serve a, a very you know, good cause. But also, I think when we start making a case for compassionate capitalism as a sustainable process for businesses, that's where we begin to uh, see some of these other uh, uh, practices begin to uh, go by the wayside. Well, as you mentioned the generational issues, it, it makes me think, you know, this generation is so accustomed to change, uh, so accustomed to uh, something new being put in front of them, you know, every 10 minutes, that, you know, makes the whole idea of a five-year strategic plan almost laughable. And, yeah. and when I think about and when I work with organizations who have um, leaders, and then there's a lot of them who have leaders who are um, of an older generation and they really believe that change is slow and that it takes a lot to, to make change happen. What I find is when they turn around and look at the employees in their organizations who are younger, who are facile with social media, etc., their belief is, you know, we can be heading down this path on this straight road and we can make a right turn in a nanosecond. And they can do a lot of that through developing the groundswell through social media. They can do a lot of that through truly touching on their passion and equating it with the purpose for the organization. And because they are still in that place in in their development where they believe everything's possible, and they also believe, you know, they're omnipotent. They can make it happen. There is Mm -hmm. no fear there. And so, you know, I agree with you that this is a generational 
um, issue, and I have heard people in this young generation say, all those people who are at the top just need to get out of our way because <laughs> they're holding us back. Yeah. And I remember saying that when I was I remember well. that, too. I do. I remember that, too. And, um, and so... You know, at some point there needs to be a little bit of that and a little bit of the um, capacity of what's been learned and what experience has taught us. You know, how can how can we learn from each other? And that gets back to kind of the learning organization. You know, how do we learn from what's been going on, but how do we learn faster? You know, it's, yeah. it's not just... You know, every time we have a planning session, whether it's a yearly, annual, or it's a five-year big strategic plan, um, which, by the way, I believe is a completely obsolete concept, um, the the whole idea of how can we be learning in the moment, every moment, and then how can we implement that immediately? Mm -hmm. How can we teach our um, organization and the people in our organization that... Change happens every minute, and just because we've made a decision doesn't mean we can't make it a little differently. You know, that I see that as a real challenge. So what do you think that, you know, what are the three or four things that leaders could go do today? You know, if they were listening to this and you got them all excited and they're like, wow, you know, we could do things differently, what could they actually go do today to begin to get themselves closer to the whole concept of compassionate capitalism, of, you know, sustainable success that is really going to be equated to meaning in their organization? Great question. A couple of things that immediately come to mind. One is, and it's an honest questioning uh, of your leadership team, uh, you know, what is our mission linked to that's beyond fiscal returns? Mm-hmm. Is it you know, for the sake of what are we in business? Because mm-hmm. you know, you know, the fiscal returns of the company do not mean squat to right. the folks in the company. It really doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I, you know, I'm pretty emphatic about that. Uh, it will mean something to them if you know you don't start you know if if you're not not making profit. But to have that be the overarching goal is is, is shareholder return, quarterly profit, and revenue numbers do not inspire anybody. So having a mission that's linked to an ideal that's beyond just the monetary uh, fiscal returns that the company would you know is, is trying to reap. That's one thing. And that's, that's worth a, a very interesting conversational exploration. Right. Um, another is literally going out and, you know, first of all, identifying who are our key stakeholders, you know, including not only your customers, your core customer group, but your suppliers, your vendors, your employee groups, uh, you know, and, and going out a little bit beyond that, who might else be impacted, what's the community nature of it. And then finding out from them, you know, setting up some focus groups perhaps. You know, what is it that would make your company relevant in their eyes? Because if you're not relevant in their eyes, you aren't meaningful to them. Mm-hmm. So what would be a sense of relevancy there? And part of that also is what is it that they need? What is it that you provide to them? What do you make possible 
for them as a consequence of your relationship with them? Do you know explicitly what that is? If, we, if, we, if you start thinking about interacting with stakeholders without making trade-offs, one of the only ways that that occurs is if I have familiarity with where are they potentially most likely to suffer. What are their greatest areas of need? That's where they're most alive. That's where they're most vulnerable. That's where I can most likely connect with them in a meaningful way, in a meaningful way. Mm. So that's another thing here. Um, and then, honestly, just taking a look at you know, how you communicate. And I, I open up a big box here when I talk about this. But you know, communication, most, most leaders that I work with, tend to be accidental communicators. They, they, <laughs> they, they, they default to expediency. Right. Uh, communication is the act, and I love Virginia Satir's definition of this. Communication is simply the ways we work out common meaning with one another. Mm-hmm. And most leaders do not pay attention to working out common meaning. So mm-hmm. taking the time to actually figure out What's the meaning that's being generated by these speech acts, by these uh, communications that we are sending out? Mm. Are we in a two-way dialogue here that actually allows us to frame a meaningful foundation that we can together move forward from? Mm. Well, you know, Blaine, those are fabulous, fabulous steps that leaders can take right when they leave here. We have a lot more we could be talking about, but guess what? We're at the end of our show. Oh, so, I know. Oh. <laughs> so I know people will want to know more about you and the work you do. So how can they learn more about that? Well, um, they can go to the company website, which is www.avatar-resources.com. You know, that's... You know, the, you know, my company's uh, primary website. My personal website is blainebartlett.com. And on that site, I've got a, you know, a, there's a, access to a blog that I keep as well as uh, access to books and readings and some other materials that, uh, that I'm making available. Um, so those are the, the two primary ways to, to get, a, you know, get a hold of, you know, of me. And the email addresses and whatnot are there. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us and for, you know, making us think a little bit outside the box here today. I'm sure we can't wait to see the book Success Sustained, The Case for Compassionate Capitalism. Blaine Bartlett, when you're finished, we'll have to have you back. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Cheryl. And, yeah, just a real quick plug. I've got a, you know, my latest book, uh, Three-dimensional coaching is actually going to be available on Amazon uh, mid-May. It's coming out in an ebook form here. It's being translated into China and uh, Chinese and Japanese, um, but it will be available here domestically uh, mid-May. Great. Three-dimensional coaching. Yeah. Look for that. Thanks, Blaine. Now remember, everyone, to think big because the world could be a better place because of a conversation that matters. This is Cheryl Esposito. 
Thank you for spending this hour with Cheryl Esposito and Leading Conversations. You can listen live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you have a question or comment for Cheryl, please email her at leadingconversations at alexaconsulting.com. That's L-E-A-D-I-N-G-C-O-N-V-E-R-S-A-T-I-O-N-S at A-L-E-X-S-A-C-O-N-S-U-L-T-I-N-G.com. See you next week. Leadership is not static. It evolves as you do. At Alexa Consulting, we work with CEOs, senior leaders, and leaders in transition who want to make a difference. Leaders who believe that good business is good for people, good for the world, and knows that conscious actions can have global impact. Are you ready to take your leadership to the next level? If you are, then visit our website at www.alexaconsulting.com. That's www.alexaconsulting.com. Alexa Consulting, developing leaders worldwide. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.